0: Hi, welcome back to The Medical Take. I'm Daniel Lina. And I'm Ariane Laws. And we're here to introduce a special episode recorded for World AIDS Day by our absent colleague, Laura Gillespie, and special
1: guest, Celia Jackson. This was recorded last year, but we're bringing it to you now as we tease
0: it ahead of the release of Series 2 in the new year. Enjoy! Hello and welcome to The Medical Take, a podcast by the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons in Glasgow. I'm Laura Gillespie, I'm a consultant in sexual health and HIV working in Lanarkshire and today I'm joined by... Hi, my name
1: is Celia Jackson and I'm one of the consultants in Glasgow um, and my specialty is infectious diseases and medical virology.
0: Okay, so today we're going to have this episode focusing on HIV and how it can present to the acute medical take um, and discuss a little bit about testing and I guess with World AIDS Day on the 1st of December it's a good time to reflect on HIV, how to recognise it, how to offer testing as well. We know that there has been a decline in new diagnoses in Scotland over the last few years however um, there's still around 8% of people with HIV unaware of their diagnosis. Um, If a person is diagnosed with HIV and and on effective treatment, then they can live a healthy, normal life expectancy and they can have sex with people who don't have HIV without condoms as long as they're um, on effective treatment. And this is coined um, as undetectable equals untransmittable. Um, Another reason that is important for us to discuss this today is that we know that there is still recent transmission occurring um, as well as continued late diagnoses and if someone's diagnosed late then their immune system is lower and it responds less well to treatment Um, and often these people have had missed testing opportunities during um, interactions with healthcare. Um, Another important thing is that we've had an increase in diagnoses amongst people who inject drugs, particularly in Glasgow since 2015. And this is a group who can often find it difficult to access traditional models of healthcare. Um, so that makes it really important that if they are accessing healthcare, that we do take that opportunity to test them. So I think, Celia, you're going to discuss a couple of cases that you've had um, on the medical wards. Uh, so I'll let you start
1: off. Thanks, Laura. Um, yeah, i was just going to go through probably three cases um, and i picked out ones that are maybe ones that where you might not think about HIV kind of testing and diagnoses kind of that early on in infection. So I guess I've kind of pulled them out because I just wanted to highlight um, these cases. So the first one I'm going to start off, this is um, a case, this is a patient that I looked after on the wards in 2018. Um so this was a 54-year-old woman who presented just generally unwell. She was quite wheezy, she had a dry cough, she was short of breath and this was all on a background of asthma and her asthma was pretty well controlled. She'd never been admitted to intensive care um, and she managed kind of with her inhalers. So I'm just going to put in at this point that this lady was a white middle-class woman who worked as a childminder and was generally very fit and active. So she was very well on a, on a, she was very unwell. Sorry, on admission, um, she had a gas with a PO two of seven point three, and this was on thirty six percent of oxygen. Her CRP was up at one hundred fifty four, and her D dimer was also raised at eight hundred uh, and fifty nine. So she was treated um, initially as an infective exacerbation of her asthma, given steroids, given nebulizers. Because of her raised D dimer, she had a CTPA, which showed no evidence of PE. But she had severe widespread ground glass opacification with lymphadenopathy, which was fairly nonspecific. And they kind of noted in her CT report that this might represent infection, inflammation or ARDS. Um, Given her high oxygen requirement, she initially was moved to um, the high dependency unit and then moved on to intensive care unit um, where she was required to be ventilated for type 1 respiratory failure. Um, so she actually got an, an HIV test fairly early on in her admission um, but it could easily have been missed I think in this case given her asthma and her kind of underlying um, respiratory um, problems but
0: it's quite easy to then just focus on the things that you know so yeah how many acute exacerbations of asthma or CPD have we seen in the wards in Clarkton and you just assume it's just another episode of that.
1: Yeah, no, definitely, it's it's yeah. totally understandable. I think what probably highlighted it in this case was that um when she got the CT, it showed something that like looked like infection, um, and they and they did kind of say it could be kind of an atypical infection, kind of on that.
0: And in the r- report, I don't know if you remember, but did they say anything about HIV or PCP? Because I've had reports in in the past where. Um, someone's ctp has been reported as have you thought about doing an hiv test
1: Uh, no in this case it wasn't mentioned at all kind of it didn't mention pcp and it didn't mention hiv so it was just i guess it was lucky it was kind of picked up early um in this case and i guess just going back um we obviously don't like to stereotype people and that's why i'm kind of raising it i guess she this woman as i said was a white middle class um woman and um, there's when you look through her notes there's no documentation of kind of sexual history there's no kind of query about HIV kind of prior to this Um so I guess it was lucky she was tested um so when they did her cd4 count it was very low it was
0: 64. So cd4 counts a measure of your immune um, system so how good your immune system is to protect you against infections.
1: Yeah so we'd like um so, yeah, a normal person would have a CD4 count usually between 500 and 1,500. Okay. Yeah. Um, so when it be- drops below 200, that's really when we worry because people are more likely to pick up opportunistic infections kind of in that case. So 64 is very is a very mm-hmm. low um, CD4 count. And so we're obviously worried about lots of other opportunistic infections that they might have. Um, And just for her, she, I mean, she's doing well now, but she stayed in hospital for two months. It was also complicated by the fact she then had seizures, they had to be investigated. Um, And, you know, it was a prolonged admission for something that if she could possibly have been tested earlier before her CD4 count was so low, you know, we might have been able to totally avoid this hospital admission.
0: And had she kept well before, or had there been quite a few episodes where she'd accessed healthcare? Because I found before when we look at notes of people who have presented late, so by that we mean their CD4 counts less than 350, that they've often had lots of missed opportunities.
1: Yeah, I think for her case there wasn't loads, but I think she had seen her GP a couple of times with, you know, kind of fatigue, a bit of weight loss. Kind of generally unwell, but I don't think she's been kind of in contact with any other healthcare providers, okay. kind of in that time. Um, so the next case I was going to talk about um, this was a forty-year-old Scottish man. Um, he worked as a manual labourer, had no past medical history, and he actually um, presented to his GP with a facial swelling on the left side of his face. He's referred to the ear, nose, and throat doctors, um, and he had some bloods taken, which showed he was pancytopenic. So ENT saw him um, and then they referred him on to haematology because of the pancytopenia. So the haematologist saw him um, and fairly early on, they did a bone marrow aspirate. So it's obviously quite an invasive um, test to do. But I think haematology had been caught out before. So they also advised getting an HIV test at that point. So his HIV test was positive. Mm -hmm. Um, And on further questioning of this man, he'd had an episode of shingles the previous year. He'd lost a lot of weight for no obvious reason. He'd complained of ongoing diarrhoea and had had recurrent chest infections as well. So he definitely is someone that could have been possibly picked up earlier and mm-hmm. um, his disease. Um, and I just you'd again just wonder was HIV not really considered because he was white, Scottish, heterosexual man. He had no travel history, he'd never been abroad, and he'd, he'd never used drugs as well. So he's possibly someone you know just wasn't considered in. Yeah,
0: it's often the older and male or heterosexual patients that are missed and present a bit later because they've maybe not identified themselves as at risk or the clinician seeing them haven't identified it as well and it's always quite easy with the gift of hindsight and looking through the notes in the past and we say oh I wish you'd done an HIV test earlier Um, but just it, it does show the importance of not always commenting on the risk factors and medicalizing HIV a little bit more um, and referring to the testing guidelines that we do have.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. Um, you know, I guess if maybe he'd been a drug user. We might have tested, you know, thought about it sooner. If he'd been from an area that was highly endemic, you know, maybe he'd been an African man, maybe would have tested um, sooner as well. But yes, we shouldn't... Um, we shouldn't take anything just because of someone's background. We need to kind of think of the diseases. So this gentleman, um, when he was diagnosed, his CD4 count was eight. So even lower than the previous case, it's really low. Um, he was diagnosed with MAC. Um, and this is kind of, we do see this in patients with the low CD4 counts.
0: So just explain what MAC is.
1: Um, it's kind of a my- it's a mycobacterial infection, so um, caused by mycobacteria, which also caused you know mycobacteria cause TB as well, but this is a different um, mm-hmm. complex of it, um, and it is seen kind of more commonly previously, I guess, when people had HIV and low CD4 counts. We don't see it that often now, um, but he was started on treatment, so there's kind of treatment similar to TB treatment that people are given for that. Um,
0: and you wouldn't expect to see Mac or an atypical infection like that in someone with a normal functioning immune system. Yeah, with a good immune system, system. Yeah. no,
1: you wouldn't. Um, he, unfortunately, after that, was while well, he was still in hospital, ended up being diagnosed with um, an aggressive EBV-driven lymphoma um, and unfortunately died while he was going to hospital. He was never discharged. So again, you know, this is a young 40-year-old man who died for no real reason if his HIV had been picked up earlier and he'd been started on treatment. Mm-hmm would have expected him to have a, you know, a normal life expectancy. Yeah,
0: it's a shame.
1: Um, and then the last case is um, fairly, uh, well, I guess, yes, another kind of similar case possibly to the first one. So this was a 71-year-old lady, a Scottish lady, who presented with weight loss and fatigue um, and was noted to be thrombocytopenic. She had platelets of 71. Um, and actually her main reason she was admitted was with delirium so I guess you're thinking a 71-year-old lady admitted with delirium. We've all clocked
0: probably in. Guessing, <laughs> probably some treated for a UTI stroke question where LRTI. <laughs>
1: exactly. We've all clocked in hundreds of patients yeah. like this. So not someone you would kind of maybe automatically think of HIV on. Um, but I guess the only thing with her, like her platelets were below That was the kind of only thing. But um, because she'd had this weight loss and fatigue, the differentials really at this stage were malignancy, Mm -hmm. possibly vascular disease, given this delirium as well. So she had a CT chest, subdo pelvis, kind of thinking about malignancy. um, And it just showed a right-sided, fairly ill-defined liposarcoma. um, but It was just kind of an incidental finding. So she, she had all her tumor markers sent. She had myeloma screen done. She had a CT scan of her head, which you'd expect as well, which just showed small vessel disease and a lacuna infarct as well. It's Um, not
0: really surprising in somebody
1: 71. Yeah, 71, no. So given the weight loss and fatigue and the fact they were looking for malignancy, she had an endoscopy and a colonoscopy booked, and her um, endoscopy showed esophageal candida. So I guess for anyone that works in HIV, when you hear about esophageal candida, you often kind of think HIV at that point and I think it was at that point that the test was kind of requested because it was unusual she didn't have any kind of respiratory background or you know she wasn't on inhaled steroids to kind of worry about it and again um, she did have an HIV test sent and her CD4 count at diagnosis was 24 Um, and this lady again had lots of kind of issues and was in hospital a long time needed a lot of rehabilitation she was she, um, she basically spent kind of three months Wow. in hospital um, and she she again had seizures as well and um, needed transfer to the high dependency unit was treated you know um, at that point as well um, and I think she ended she had some changes on her CT scan um, and her toxoplasmosa Toxoplasmosis serology was also positive, so she had to go through toxoplasmosis treatment as well. So, you know, all these things kind of added up and she was in hospital mm-hmm. um, for a long time.
0: So, yeah, like you say, with um, as soon as we hear esophageal candida, it's automatically, let's think about an HIV test, um, and that could have contributed to our weight loss as well as HIV-driving weight loss as well because um, you've got an uncontrolled virus. Yeah.
1: So I guess um for the for, I guess for anyone who's doing general medicine, um, I guess just thinking about where we would get a lot of our referrals from and things we would we would think of. Um so just kind of in general, people with fever and malaise might have weight loss, generalised lymphadenopathy um and often kind of feeds into that diarrhea for more than one month. So gastroenterologists have kind of realised now that everyone that they see with kind of ongoing diarrhoea gets an HIV test, and that's really important. And I've just had a patient, like in the last couple of months, who's been, was referred by the GP to gastroenterology with ongoing diarrhoea and weight loss and was diagnosed as being HIV positive. Um, We also, as I mentioned, we get a lot of referrals from haematology. So people who've got who are anemic, um, lymphopenic, thrombocytopenic, so kind of any anything you might see on your blood, your full blood count with abnormalities, you know, I guess always have at the back of your mind, think about HIV um, kind of there as well. So we get referrals from them.
0: And lymphoma would be a, yes. a, a reason to do a test as well.
1: Yeah, Yeah, definitely. Um, from We get, like I said, some referrals from ear, nose and throat doctors again, because they've been caught out, times patients with lymphadenopathy referred to them. They kind of go through getting a biopsy. You know, sometimes the biopsy just looks reactive and HIV tests aren't always done. So really important to think about anyone with lymphadenopathy or um, kind of fits into that. And then the dermatologist as well. I mean, pretty much, you know, a lot of, a lot of um, dermatological conditions can can be due to um, HIV. Obviously, things if you saw a carposy sarcoma people will probably think more about HIV, but just don't forget people presenting with recurrent herpes Mm -hmm. infections. So herpes simplex or um, especially recurrent shingles as well. Um, If you get multi dermatomal shingles as well, it's really important to think about it um, too. And I think um, Laura mentioned, we do the look back at some of the patients who um, have been missed. Um, Sometimes things like gynecological malignancies, I think Mm -hmm. are missed sometimes. So, Um, so women presenting with um, cervical cancers and also um, with men presenting with kind of anal cancers um, as well I guess we just need to remember to always do an HIV test in, in these patients
0: Yeah and I think when you so we're talking about the BEVA testing guidelines so that's the British HIV uh, Association um testing guidelines and it's it it, it's quite nice from the point of view it splits it up into aids defining conditions where you definitely need to order a test and then other indicator conditions where you could consider a test and it splits it up into the different specialties so being aware of your own specific specialty but if you are a generalist then um, just always having on back of your mind if it if it doesn't quite make sense is there something else that's going on um and the same way as if somebody came in that they were short of breath you would have a battery of tests that you automatically do so like you'd be doing full blood count chest x-ray checking oxygen saturations um and we don't feel the need to really counsel patients for very long to to offer these tests and I guess with anything you should be offering informed consent so um, we're checking your full blood count to see if you're an or if you've got an infection. So offering an HIV test is really similar and I think if you do medicalise it and say it's part of your investigation for generalised weight loss in my experience most people then accept a the test. Um, they might say oh, I'm not at risk um, but I mean, if you've had sex once, you're at risk, um, there could be other risk factors like um, exchanging um, equipment for injecting drugs, or it could be passed on um, from mother to child. So it's always worth just medicalising it rather than making a comment on someone's lifestyle factors necessarily.
1: Yeah, that's right. So on the ward, I test pretty much all my patients that come onto the ward, especially working infectious diseases, So anyone with an infection, And um, I just say to them, listen, I'm going to just te- test you for HIV, hepatitis B and hepatitis C. This is just a routine test. We do it for anyone that's got an infection. Um, it's not necessarily that I think you've got it. Um, and that's just to say anyone can test for HIV. So yeah, if you're thinking about it, then definitely do it. You don't need to get well what we tend to we, we get verbal consent from the patient so I would just document in the notes bloodborne virus virus um, test and patient consented next to that and that's as much consent as you need to get because I know in the past it has worried people that you need to get kind of m- much more consent for it but if, as long as you just document in the notes ask them if they can have an HIV test and they have said yes.
0: Yeah. I do remember when I was at uni a long time ago that there would be osteo-stations and communication skills training on how to offer someone an HIV test and how to give a results well and that was always under the breaking bad news um, section so hopefully we're a bit we've moved on and it's not so much breaking bad news and if you've got a little bit of an understanding of what a positive result means then that's really helpful for the person you're giving the diagnosis to as well. Yeah.
1: And just to say, there's lots of services out there that are available to support you. So I know there's often worry that if you take the test and it's positive, then you've got to give that result. And yes, you do. But like the infectious diseases um, service here and, you know, in each, wherever you're working, there will be somebody that will be able to help you and give you advice and um, could possibly come with you to see the patient to give that um, news if needed. And sometimes the GPs are very good at doing it as well because they know the patients very well. So you know, um, I don't think that should ever be a reason to stop you taking it, because if you're worried you're going to get a positive test and who's going to give that result, you know, there are definitely support out there for for that.
0: Definitely, and the more often you, you offer a test, the, the easier it is to offer it to people.
1: Yeah, um, and I guess the last bit we're just going to talk a little bit about is if you have an HIV patient that's admitted under your care, or um, through medical receiving, um, HIV patients, Tend to most of them are on treatment, um, and these are treatments that you might not really be aware of. You might not have kind of ever heard of before, which is fine. Um, but some of them do have drug drug interactions, um and the main one sometimes it gets missed. You know that might cause problems is amitriptyline interacts Mm -hmm. with a lot of them and you know that's a very practically everyone's on amiprazole these days um so it's just really important that um you if you're starting new drugs for any patients who've got hiv there's you can either speak to the pharmacists any of the um infectious diseases pharmacists or else there's a very good website if you just go into google and put in liverpool hiv drug interactions there's a very good website that comes up that you can put in all the medications into that and you can see if there's interactions um,
0: some, some drugs that you don't consider as a threat to other medications, like even antacids, can interact with certain types of antiretrovirals. So it's making sure that you've got a good um, medication history, that you, although you're asking about prescribed drugs, you're also considering over-the-counter medicines, herbal remedies, supplements, because sometimes there's a bit of a disconnect with patients, of they don't consider that to be a medication because it's not prescribed by a doctor. Um, and if there is something that you want to prescribe that does interact with their HIV medications then if if there's no alternative for you to give then you could discuss with the HIV team of could we switch this person to another HIV drug regimen as well
1: yeah I think um, definitely since I've kind of started doing HIV we've seen a lot of changes in the medications you know um, much better tolerated by patients much less for side effects but we've got ma- many more options available to us so yes if if um one i've had problems with recently is some of the um the DOACs. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're starting if patients have got p's or dbt's and you're going you want to start them you know they can interact with some of the medications but there are lots of things we possibly can switch patients to so definitely if you get in touch with the um the pharmacists uh, who can contact your infectious diseases team we can look at other options
0: yeah and another thing to think about is if somebody is going to be null by mouth or you're doing an intervention then consider how you're going to get their HIV medications into them so do we need to switch routes um so again speak to your pharmacist either on the ward speak to the pharmacist if you can um and they'll they'll give you advice because you don't want to stop medications um because then you can run into complications of um, HIV drug resistance. Um, so it's better to, to be proactive if you can.
1: Yes, definitely.
0: Um, so there are a few exciting things that have been happening over the last few years. Um, so we've talked about um, the fact there has been a bit of a decline in new HIV infections that have been diagnosed um we've had um four of the cities in scotland have signed up to fast track cities so that's um really it's getting the government to buy into um reducing new HIV transmissions. So that's really exciting that Aberdeen, Dundee, Edinburgh, Glasgow have all signed up to that commitment to end new HIV transmissions. Um, and since 2017 we've had HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis, so that's taking some anti-HIV medications before you come in contact with HIV. Um, and in the first two and a half years there was over 4,000 people in Scotland prescribed PrEP. Um, However, the majority of that was within the gay, bisexual and men who have sex with men uh, categories. So although this has got a really good reach to that category, we are missing other people who are potentially at risk. Um, The HIV testing guidelines are a really good resource and just being aware of what... um, ..what... what, um, presentations you might see in your specialty and if you're ever in doubt just offer an hiv test because you might pick it up when you're not really expecting it i think it would be useful to focus on the key points from the episodes
1: so i think the main take-home messages for me would be never be scared to do an hiv test you know um Test everyone that's coming into receiving, if you want, but I guess just always consider it. There are obviously some diagnoses that are a bit, some presentations that are a bit more likely to present as HIV. Um, And we basically, we want everyone, you know, we would like HIV to be picked up early because those people who are picked up early can be started on treatment and have a normal life expectancy. And then I guess just finally, if you have an HIV patient who you're looking after, then please feel free to ask um, your local infectious diseases or GUM specialties for advice and we'd be happy to give advice on drugs and treatment.
0: Thanks very much for listening to this episode of The Medical Take. If you want to tag us on Twitter it's hashtag The Medical Take at RCPS Glasgow and that's all for this episode.